Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with my brother, Henry Fraser, who has just handed in his PhD at Oxford. So uh, he is pending doctorhood, if that all goes through well. And uh, I chatted with him in a busy cafe in Drury Lane in London just before I ran off to the airport. Uh, so we ran out of time to talk about the thing that he introduced at the beginning, which was uh, he has opinions about swearing or the excessive use of swearing in uh, discourse at the moment. And he introduced that and didn't get round to it. But what we did end up talking about a lot of was nuance and argumentation and uh, the way to engage with an opposing viewpoint in a useful and um, productive manner, which he thinks is is lacking particularly, well, on both sides of politics, but uh, speaking as someone who has relatively leftist views, uh, he sees that as being an issue of the left at the moment. So we had a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it, as I always enjoyed talking to Hen, and occasionally I can bully him into coming onto the podcast. So uh, I enjoy being able to offer that to you. Thank you, everybody who's been emailing me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. It's really wonderful and, and lovely to get these emails. They're always so thoughtful and, and, and deep and, and engaged, and it really makes me happy. Uh, thank you, everybody who's subscribed to the Patreon. If you, don't, if you haven't followed this drama, Patreon recently said that they were going to change their fee structure, and a bunch of people dropped off the platform, a bunch of uh, contributors dropped off the platform, I lost a few, I know everybody else lost some, but then Patreon has backed down and or backed off or decided not to change the fee structure, so that's a dead loss for all involved, thank you everybody who stuck with it and is stuck with me, it's um, incredible, it's an incredible thing especially coming up to Christmas as gigs drop off. It's a really wonderful thing to be able to continue to produce work and uh, not not be incredibly stressed out about that. Thank you, everybody, who's been buying Christmas presents off my website, alicefraser.com. And uh, I will have a show in London on the 1st of January. If you, if, that's, if you are the kind of person who wants to do something on the evening of the 1st of January, I will be doing a show at the Camden Comedy Club on the 1st of January. Tickets are free, but they are available online. So you just book in and then it's a pay-what-you-want deal. Also, go to the Soho Theatre from the 17th of December if you want to see Andy Zaltzman's solo show, which may or may not have a special guest. And I can't say more than that, but uh, I am currently in Switzerland, which is where I was rushing off to at the end of this conversation that you're about to hear. And it's incredible. It's cold. It takes an hour to walk through the snow up the hill across the river to the shops. And it's about uh, it's about the most remote I've been for a long time. And it's making me feel very good. And the fact that I can do a podcast and put it out there from such a remote place in the world makes me feel like we live in the future which we don't we live in the present for the present is the future present is the future of the past i'm you might you might be able to listen here you might be able to hear that i'm a little bit uh a little bit tired a little bit happy i've met my friend's new baby which was the purpose of this visit and it is a good baby i love babies i always have loved babies it's not an age-related thing uh, and this is a particularly good baby. She has no middle gears. She is either incredibly happy or incredibly upset. And it's wonderful to watch a little brain figuring out the world around it. Because babies aren't stupid. They just don't know anything. And that's making me happy. I made dinner. 
and that's that's all that's all you need to know about my day other than the snow walking which was fantastic and it's such a privilege to be able to do that I had some some money saved up from some gigs I'd done. I, Laura Davis, who's a friend of the podcast, always says when you do a terrible gig, uh, you have to spend the money on something good. And I'd been banking up some some blood money from gigs that were deeply unpleasant to do. And I spent it on this trip, which is an extravagance. But I got to meet a baby, a new friend, a new tiny, tiny friend. And uh, to be in the snow like this is a, is a great thing. Don't worry, Patreons, I didn't spend your money on this. Uh, this is all all blood money uh, from horrible gigs. So it's nice to be able to spend that on something that brings me delight. I will talk to you next week. I'm really rambling at this point. I will talk to you next week. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. Uh, you're having tea with Alice. So who are you and what are you drinking? I, my name is Henry Fraser. Um, I am drinking a sparkling water. And I'm drinking a green tea, and we're in Drury Lane, in famous Drury Lane in London, at a brunch cafe, which stops serving brunch at midday, which I think is an abomination. Oh, well, you can't blame him. I can and do. How hard is it to poach an egg after midday? Apparently, very, very hard. Uh you don't look you don't look convinced by my cynicism about this. Well, they may have any number of reasons which we just haven't considered. That they're lazy liars. Yeah. I mean, brunch is the thing that they make the most profit on as well. Cuz eggs don't cost that much. Who's they? Cafes in general, it's the okay. highest margin. Yeah. So anyway, what have you been struggling with recently? Uh, I haven't well, I don't know if I want to share my struggles. Wrestling with, intellectually. Uh, well, I've just been, I, would, well, I haven't been wrestling with anything. I've been mulling. Mulling, all right. On certain, um, and I was trying to, before I, uh, before I got here, to tr- draw it together with some kind of, under some kind of coherent umbrella. And I'd say that the coherent umbrella is nuance in discourse. Mm. So there are various things that, have been on my mind that I was thinking I would like to write an article about but haven't got around to. Um, uh, and they both... I'll pick, I will stick to two because I don't think we have that much time, but both of them have to do with nuance in discourse. One of them is swearing and especially swearing in public, uh, sort of you know, broadcasting of swearing or answering interviews in foul language or... Uh, you know, the use of sort of throwaway profanity as just part of, you know, like WTF kind of thing. Yeah. As just sort of, you know, the... Uh, I mean, at first glance, that seems like a very old-fashioned uh, persnicket to have. Yeah, I, I think perhaps it is. But anyway, I w- I w- maybe I'll go into what I thought. The second thing about nuance was... You know, it's on everyone's mind. It's not as, as if this is a particularly original subject, but, um, you know, this... this I, I've recently got... Uh, the, well, let me summarise and then I'll <laughs> tell you the background. Yeah. yeah. So, so just the lack of capacity to... Um, for people who are engaged in heated debate or in public debates, they seem to really lack qualification or... Um, you know, there's just uh, there's just sort of ardent 
sense that one side on each side must just be right in every aspect of its assertion yeah. and there's no you know there's no consideration given to the possibility that actually there might be some complexity and I've noticed that in all kinds of public debates they're just positions it's not really not really debates they're just people identifying with positions in the debate and that's as far as it goes and I think the two things are related that's that's my yeah I don't know if it's a problem of like breadth versus depth because there are so many different angles on which to argue that people tend to have quite a a shallow approach to all of them rather than picking one and going in depth so for example you know the complexities of sexual assault have been reduced to either oh come on get over it or um, you know men, men are always to blame or victims are never to blame at all or have no thank you um, no causative um, all victims are 100% unresponsible for everything that ever happens to them ever. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, it's a, one of those things that I even I feel uncomfortable saying that, you know, some women lie or some women are deliberately provoking a response or, you know, that kind of thing makes me uncomfortable to say just because of the environment that we're in at the moment. But when I genuinely know women who have screwed men over with false accusations or exaggerated accusations or edited accusations well I think that the problem you know that's the part of the character of the debate is such that if you make a point like that without necessarily attributing to it some particular priority in your argument or some particular weight you know it's a point you know the next step in a reasoned argument is to decide you know what proportion how relevant is it you know, how do we weigh that against the other harms and benefits? You know, there's so many steps in order to actually give that its proper significance in the argument. But part of the problem is that because everybody is arguing in these sorts of positions, as soon as you say that, then whether you like it or not, your interlocutors and also the people who take that position themselves will immediately just leap on that, uh, attribute that position as to, you, to you in an unqualified way. You said whatever it is that is not permitted to be said. Mm. Or you said whatever it is that must be said because we're men and we're being oppressed. You know, well, whereas that's not... A, the, the terms of the argument are cast in militaristic framework. So conceding a point is seen as opening the doors to the besiegers and some sort of treachery of your side. Oh, that, that it's a sort of a betrayal. I mean, there is a lot of language of betrayal, isn't there? And a lot of... Um, yeah, if you concede any ground, it is a, a betrayal of your... People. And it is that military thing where traitors get shot, yeah. as it were. But like that's the kind of extreme. Yeah, but then you already have that idea, right? That why should it be treachery? Why should it be treachery to, you know? Really, I think that questioning your own. No one ought to hold to a position if they can't really justify it under challenge. You know, you can you can sort of tentatively hold a sort of fee, an opinion without really. Uh, broadcasting it or insisting on it but you know if you really want to insist on a position then you can only oh I wouldn't feel comfortable advocating any position until I tested it right and the idea that you should should subject it to scrutiny and then find a more you know nuanced uh, careful 
um, scrupulous way to arrive at your conclusion, taking that into account, taking into account, all right, perhaps there is, you know, this proportion of cases in which a victim has had, you know, this proportion of responsibility, you know, not to say blame or, you know, I'm not going to, this is an example, so I don't really want to weigh in the debate because I don't actually um, know enough information about it. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to talk about how you might have that, how you might bring into your worldview the possibility that it's not an absolute all or nothing, uh, you know, that, that every case differs, basically. Yeah. Yeah, but I think part part of the thing is, okay, so let's caveat this first. Uh, I think that everyone who commits a crime or does a wrong to somebody else is ultimately and fully responsible for that crime, absent, you know, some sort of mental illness or... Well, they ought, they ought to be held responsible. Held I don't responsible. know whether they, they are... Whether anyone is fully responsible for anything, well, you know. that's a question of free will, that's, right? Yeah, yeah. But let's say, but, you know, putting yes, that aside, they should be held responsible. Held accountable, yes. They should be held accountable. But equally, yes. Often situations are more nuanced. Often there is a contextual pressure one way or another. Yeah. But um, I've lost my train of thought by eating quiche. Oh. has distracted me. But I think that... I think there's something about the rapidity with which this discourse takes place that because of the way we get our information and we're required to react to it immediately which is down to things like the cues in our social media which are always like what do you think what do you comment on this the frictionlessness of engagement means that you feel compelled to respond very quickly and there are a dozen other things in the line to also respond to discourages that kind of uh, slow meditative like the closest you get to a thought through nuanced argument now is like a Twitter thread where someone goes one two and it's like unbearable to read yeah yeah I mean I don't um, I don't I I spend less and less time I probably spend more time on Twitter than I used to I spend less time on everything else Mm. Um, but you know here's here's another example you know because I haven't given the consent issue enough thought to to weigh in on it, really. Yeah. Although I think you know broadly, I agree. Like if you don't, if you're not absolutely certain about the consent of somebody, then you shouldn't engage them sexually. Yeah. Take the risk of you them know. saying no. Yeah, because and just the you know, potential alternative is you accidentally rape someone. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. I mean, that's my yes. But um, you know, something which I was thinking about recently, you know, uh, is the the gay marriage debate, and I'm I'm really going into con- controversial topics, so I hope I don't get backlash because that's not my intention to. Uh, my intention is not to advocate one side or the other of this debate. So just to be upfront, I did vote in favour of gay marriage, but what I was quite surprised by again was just how poor the quality of the debate was most of the time I'm sure there were you know I didn't delve deeply into it but I'm sure there were some you know nuanced and careful arguments but one of the things that struck me as sort of almost a trope almost a meme of you know what you might call the good side of the debate in favor of gay marriage was some you know some version of this um um if you don't vote, uh, you know, I'm gay. If you don't vote in favour of gay marriage, then you don't think I'm human. That was the sort of thing. 
Um, I should also clarify that I'm not talking about me being gay. I'm straight, <laughs> but this is what this is what I saw among. So you had your question period in your teens. Yeah, but <laughs> no, um, no comment. Um, but so some version of that argument, and I thought to myself, well, that sort of doesn't give much. You know, you're attributing an opinion or an attitude based on the sense of frustration and hurt that you might feel but you know if if it so happens that any proportion of any population strongly holds a view it do- certainly doesn't mean that view is right but you know your fellow humans aren't idiots and most people also aren't completely lacking in compassion or human feeling so I feel like you have to try to empathize with people even when you really strongly disagree with them and you think they're very wrong and of course some of them are wrong out for, for some of them are wrong for the wrong reasons but some of them are wrong for the right reasons um, and uh, maybe I don't know. for reasons that are less malicious than you yeah so for example and this is again not an opinion that I hold but I um, I know people who who were very uh, skeptical about gay marriage because they they believed and I don't know if they believed on good evidence I think the evidence is actually uh, the other way but they believed um, they formed the view that it was better for children to have two uh, parents you know heterosexual parents that that was for the welfare of the children they had no ill feeling towards gay people at all actually they just thought based on what they knew you know that actually which is always limited which is always limited limited. and you know from from what and again I haven't studied this but from what um, Linda's told me who did some study on this you know obviously the most important thing is to have two loving parents if you can you know I suppose one loving parent if you're in that situation but you know generally children's development is Enhanced by having two loving parents, but someone can, you know, someone can be very compassionate, very open-minded, have think there's nothing morally wrong with homosexuality, and still be against gay marriage, and without thinking that gay people are not human. So that's just an example of how someone might form that opinion. And yeah. I feel like with almost every argument which has been reduced to extremes, there's somewhere along the spectrum on the other side that some that someone might be and and assuming that they're on the extreme end of the spectrum rather than on the more compassionate end of the spectrum is an unproductive move. I, yeah, I think unproductive is the way to put it. And particularly when it comes to things like, you know, single parenthood. You know, you're better off having one loving parent than one loving parent and a maniac or you yeah, know, a course. deadbeat or whatever yeah. it happens to be <laughs> and when it comes to like child development it's it's mainly just a matter of time you know that the, the, the parents have to have time yeah. for the children yes so the reason you have two is because then that's you know there's more time to simultaneously feed them clothe them and you know teach Give them, them emotional how to support yeah differentiate their foot from their fist yeah yeah so i felt i you know i sort of felt like um it's great. It's great that that particular um, plebiscite or ridiculous travesty of a plebiscite um, went the way that it did in terms of the result. But I don't think that liberal people appreciate the damage that is done by always strawmanning p- 
people uh, who with whom they disagree. And by straw manning, I mean, you know, attributing to those people views. Person-y. Yeah, attributing to those people, uh, you know, a simplified version of the view uh, in order to, ta- to attack it and tear it apart, you know, like a straw version of the person. Well, this is like something I did uh, my last in my last year of law, one of my... Uh, optional units that I did was mediation and one of the things that they say is really useful for mediation is you reflect somebody's argument back to them in a clarified way just to prove that you actually understand what they're saying and that's an incredibly powerful move in a mediation in reaching some sort of compromise uh, or reaching an agreement is you go I understand what you're saying yeah and if they if you do understand what they're saying and you're not maliciously misrepresenting it to them, it garners a great goodwill. So if you go, look, I understand that you believe this, uh, but here is the data to prove the contrary, you know, then again you've got this problem with science at the moment and the fact that a lot of data is heavily politicised and massaged and all of that. So people on both sides will regularly go, that's a bullshit statistic. It can't be true. Yeah, I mean, that's frustrating. I think the problem there, as with all the other things, I guess, really, is that the, as you say, you know, the, the, the idea of concede, not even conceding the point, but clarifying the argument suggests that your discussion, however heated, mm. is has a cooperative goal in mind. You know, in mediation, the goal is to come away with a solution to the dispute. Yes, the goal um, is that both sides feel vaguely dissatisfied. Well, yes, with the but that, that some some outcome is reached rather than just loggerheads. I and, think that and maybe is the point of that compromise is seen again as betrayal. That these these sides are characterised as being so opposite to one another that there is only one view of the world which can prevail, because even allowing space for the other view is dangerous. Yeah, I think that's a mistake. Either I think to traditional values or to the future of the human race. Well, I think I don't think that we're taught at school I don't know about the UK education system, but I certainly don't think that we were taught. We were taught at school to argue and to support an argument with evidence but it wasn't really instilled in me until, you know, postgraduate study that it shouldn't just be spurious, that you shouldn't just try to make a point and then uh, you know, shape the evidence to fit your argument, which was the skill that you learn in high school. Is to just say, you know, the teacher's like, no, there's no wrong answer. You just, you know, we want to see that you can write a paragraph in uh, with good English syntax and grammar and support it with an example and then analyze the example. And so, but and but actually, to the point where you actually got rewarded for presenting like out their arguments and being able to back them up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly English lit in un- English literature undergrad, that was some well, some some people, you know, didn't reward it and that's good and I would feel indignant when it wasn't rewarded but it was it was generally and I, I think that what is missing is um, a sense of you know people we don't learn theory we don't learn the idea of theory a sense of overarching frameworks as part of our general education we learn about certain theories but you know you don't un- yeah we, we don't, don't for we example get what how is to the apply a theory to a text but we don't get taught how a theory is 
built or predicated or yes, or motivated. we but we don't but but what specifically what I mean here is we don't have instilled in us a theory of deliberation, discussion, and discourse. What is what we're trying to achieve? So all the whole exercise is an exercise in defeating the enemy. Well, that's not the purpose of deliberation in a democratic society. We're, we're all in it together. You know, you have to assume some goodwill. I mean, unfortunately, it gets harder and harder the more this goes on. But you have to assume some goodwill on each side that actually everyone just wants to, to generate an outcome that is, that is positive. And yeah. people who are, you know, but wildly conservative, have a different idea of what that positive outcome is but they're engaging, or you have to at least try to enter into a discussion on the assumption, give them credit. And the same, you know, people who are, who are fed up with really uh, so-called regressive left arguments, really strong liberal arguments, or people who are centrist and who won't take either side and, you know, are seen as trade. Or, you know, anyone who's engaging in public debate, of course, they're an element of ego, there's an element of combativeness, but there needs to be a consciousness that it's, a deliberative exercise with a goal in mind which is cooperative yeah yeah it is that thing where whenever I have an argument with somebody like who's close to me I always want to uh, touch them not in a non-consensual way but like just have a bit of physical contact like I would prefer to have my hand on somebody's shoulder if I'm arguing with them just as a physical way of going hey we're in this together I still like you we're still friends yeah that's nice uh, um, yeah that's lacking unfortunately from forms of communication that aren't face to face right so what my proposal is that when we get two sides to debate they have to hug each other while they <laughs> debate <laughs> you have to keep maintain contact with some part yeah just finger to finger like E.T. I mean I honestly think that it probably would weirdly work well it's this really interesting thing my friend Jamali is currently doing a series for Viceland where he talks to and deals with hate groups these people who he disagrees with on almost everything and they're all different hate groups but the thing that combines them or unites them under the umbrella of his show is that they definitely hate someone Yeah. and you know there's plenty of people who he has to talk to and genuinely be at least in conversation sympathetic to because he wants to draw them out he wants them to tell him what they really think and to be casual and open around him so he has to be friendly at least you know and it's a really interesting dynamic to watch well it, it sort of takes away their main weapon which is uh, this disconnect between them and other people so it's very easy to keep stoking up your hate if all you get back is uh, resentment and sort of whereas if it's very hard if someone just keeps absorbing all of that in deflecting it and just coming back with kind of friendliness and geniality it's kind of yeah, well one of the things that was really interesting in the last year and of course you know in the news cycle now it's ages ago but Clementine Ford who's a very um, outspoken aggressive uh, online feminist she outs people who send her messages. She deliberately um, engages with online hatred as part of her brand and persona. She's very patient with these people, but she's also quite ruthless in exposing them to their employers or families if they've sent her a private message that is unpleasant. Um, her, 
her father is deeply conservative and in politics and it sort of came out that he you know got into the news this fact and she was asked to account for why she still had a relationship with him and it just seemed so strange to me because of course you have a relationship with your father and you well, can you still, hope you hope you have a you relationship, you have a relationship with, your with your father but just the fact that you disagree politically even vehemently even on like fundamental issues doesn't seem to me to be adequate to not have a relationship with that person anymore yeah yeah that's right they're asking her not to give her father the benefit of a doubt as a human you know leaving aside everything else that you shouldn't have a relationship with him because of his opinions is a bit crazy and that you should really kind of only be friends with or expend emotional energy on or do emotional labor for people with whom you agree that's a pretty bland life isn't it which I think there are two downsides to that. Yeah. Maybe three, maybe four. The main ones that sort of jump out to me straight away is, first of all, we, are, we reset ourselves to the middle, wherever we are. Well, we we tend to think of ourselves yeah, as in the yeah. middle of wherever we are. So if we're only exposed to a small circle of, for example, very right-wing arguments, we'll locate ourselves somewhere that we feel is reasonable in that range. And if you're not exposing yourself to the arguments out of, outside of that, you s- sort of shift and shift and shift. Yeah. This is the law of this, this is, is the law of one of the driving dynamics. So, although there are many of the law of group polarization, I think yeah. I believe. Yeah. So you will think that this is the world, and these are the arguments that need to be had, and you can completely disconnect from a broader society. And that part of that is appealing because it means you're creating a sort of a utopian society where the argument is over this small thing. But you can get equally heated about that small thing and equally in-groupy about that and it sort of splits and splits and splits and you lose that unified sense of purpose if, you've, if you're not engaging in anything more than a surface way with, you know, if you're like, oh, those guys think, what, what those guys think is bullshit, I don't have to engage with it, I refuse to engage with it, it's going to disappear without me which is not true. And then the other, the other thing about that is that you then lose the ability to persuade the other side. If you, you can't persuade someone who you've dismissed. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, Cass Sunstein is one of the leading thinkers about that particular process of polarisation. He has two really amazing books. One... Uh, which has a very cheesy title, but I suppose he's allowed because he's over 50. It's called Hashtag Republic. It used to be called Republic.com. Oh, no. And I think the second edition was called Republic.com 2.0. Oh. <laughs> and now it's the third edition is called Republic. Uh, but, you know, the fact that there are three editions uh, suggests, uh, and it's true, that he was on this. You early. Know, early. I think the first edition was published in 2001 or 2002. Um, and the other book that he's written is... Um, I think it's called uh, Going to Extremes, How Like Minds, uh, how, how mm, I can't remember exactly. The, the title is Going to Extremes. I don't know what after the colon comes after. But anyway, he's, Cass Sunstein is quite... Going to Extremes, colon, the place of the colon in mm, yeah, t- book titles. Yeah, there's one more thing I just wanted to say on this subject, and maybe, yeah. which was that before we move on, because I, I see we're not not time rich um, yeah I've got to go to Geneva like a fancy pants 
Yeah, the other... The, the I have a sense that, that generally we are not, um, as a debating public, very good at weighing... Uh, weighing possibi- possibilities against uh, certainties. Um, well, there's that thing about the baseballers, right? They pay more for the potential of a baseballer. They'll pay more for, like, a baseballer out of college than they will for someone who's been hitting great scores for the last five years. Well, I'd say it's probably the other way with argument with the, with arguments is that we always... You know, I was just thinking about the divide between... Uh, between the left and the right. I think it's actually the left is, ba- is worse at this. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I think the left always misunderstands the right. And I'm probably coming across as a massive apologist for the right, which I don't well, intend to be. this is again the issue of this, this bubbleization. You live in a world where you're, you can kind of assume that you and the people around you who you regularly converse with are far on the left and so you want to address the problems of the left. Yeah, if you were on the right, you know, I think that's a well. No, I think right wingers do it, but the examples that are springing to mind. Let's just go back to the other example that I. Well, no, let's just go to the very basic, the most basic disagreement between the left and the right. The you know, right wing people don't like the state to share wealth as much as left wing people like the state to share wealth with those who are disadvantaged, and left wing people assume that because less less because on the face of it there is less of a commitment to distributing wealth the number of people to whom wealth is distributed and the number of people distributing wealth is quantitatively less and therefore you know without further ado people on the right must not care about people who aren't wealthy well I don't think that's the case at all I think some people on the right you know feel like they just want uh, don't want to share and that people shouldn't have to share and they've worked hard and so on and so forth and that, that's an argument but I also think many people on the right think that it's not good for for the state to intervene and to distribute wealth that wealth is not distributed efficiently in that way that but you know, and that if we allowed individuals to exercise more autonomy and made them more responsible for their own affairs then you know qualitatively there would be an improvement in the quality of life for those people because they would become more independent but that's a qualitative argument it's contingent it depends on so much changing and when you when it comes up against an argument which is just about numbers more money more people more people giving money more people getting money um, you know it's very easy to just attribute bad faith in wherever someone is making an argument that relies on the possible or the contingent. Um, you know, and I'm more inclined towards a kind of a social democracy model, but I certainly am not... I don't assume bad faith. No, there's a really interesting book on this, the... Um the our, our culture and what's or what's left of it, I think, is that's a mock-up of the title. But Theodore Dalrymple has written it. Well, he's like the quintessential right-wing yeah. uh, figure. But it's a really interesting book because he speaks from his experience as a doctor in uh, jails and slums in London. I think he's a psychiatrist. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but yeah, a psychiatrist. Perhaps I don't know exactly. But some of his arguments are really interesting in that, you know, he has seen 
the downside of the welfare state or what he perceives to be the downside of the welfare state. Sure, and his argument is that it's not good for them. Yes. Rather than, oh, it's not good for us who have to pay for these bludges or this sort of classic uncompassionate, like deeply dull and uncreative argument that that you see you know in tabloids but But obviously he's dealing with a very again he's dealing with the very extreme end of that spectrum the people who are incapable of looking after themselves but uh feel entitled to be looked after yeah well it's hard to again it's with those arguments it's hard to assess how representative well, I think it's not very representative. Is. I imagine there's plenty of people who have been in hard times and used welfare and done it well or got back on their feet or certain people who are incapable for reasons of disability of getting back on their feet for whom welfare is like the difference between life and death. Yeah. But he's dealing specifically with this demographic, which exists. That's but right. I don't. The question is whether that demographic existing, these people who feel entitled to welfare don't look after themselves, don't look after their families, end up in trouble, end up, you know, leeching off the state. That demographic existing, whether that is enough to prove a counter-argument to the good that the welfare system does. Yeah, that's right. Well, you've put it very well there. I think that um, it's the question, it raises a question, and, and the reflex when you get a piece of data or input or argument like that is to present it as an answer. Yeah. You know, there are these people who, for whom, uh, that whom the welfare state renders helpless, and therefore it's bad. You know, that's. But actually, what you've said is, okay. We know now. We know that some people it helps, some people it doesn't. It does. You know, and then you then you start to make other calculations, whether based on whatever, you know, kind of and then ethical that, that kind of extremism or the it's always good or it's always bad ease of argument stuff ends up with you know uh you know friends of mine who are immigrants saying that they feel this intense pressure to be model immigrants so they're not allowed to be flawed or shitty parents or bad husbands or you know take a day off for sick leave because they have to prove something they have to live up to this uh perfected idea of the model immigrant so that they can prove their side right and otherwise they're seen as by themselves or by their community as betraying their community. Or letting the community down. Well, I think that's a, yeah, that's a pressure that is specific to immigrants. Do you think it's specific to immigrants? I think it's, I think it's got, I like, I feel it as a woman if I'm the only woman on the lineup. In comedy. In comedy of just going, well, if I... If I shit the bed, people are going to think women are bad at comedy. People who've come in here thinking women are bad at comedy, if I don't disprove their perception, I have failed my sisterhood. Well, that's just a certain... That's just... I don't know if that does anyone any favours, but I, I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I, 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 I take your point. Do you feel the need to be like more gentle with women because of the perception of against uh <laughs> well you're going to unleash one of my particular rants which means we won't have time to get onto the subject of swearing but i i don't feel exactly that i do feel like um because i've been privileged uh and because i speak a certain way and look a certain way um and because i don't identify with or arti- or, or sort of espouse messages of really pr- 
progressive messages. It's not something that I spend my time on that I'm not, for example, a committed feminist. And I feel like I want to tell people all the good, which I'm not going to do here. I'm going to resist well, the impulse, but I want I to tell people. Tell people that you are the, the housekeeper of your family the unit, maker. the homemaker. <laughs> yeah. you, you do the cooking and the cleaning and the ironing and... You know, your wife makes more money than you. Like, yeah, yeah, and so I, you are I have in spent effect a feminist. I, yeah, that's right. In practice, in practice, I'm my wife's wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to gender things, um, yeah. But I, so I feel that pressure. I sometimes wanted to. Well, now if you've given me the <laughs> the opportunity, well, to yeah. Broadcast it, but you know that. You know, but again, that's just another example. If we if we return to our theme it's another example is you just don't know it's bad it's a bad idea to attribute opinions based to people or 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 positions or feelings or outlooks you know just got to take people that you got to be charitable i think you have to be charitable i think that you are allowed a rebuttable presumption like you're allowed to go, oh yeah, I think I know what you are. Yes, from but I don't think. Cues, but then it has to fold in the face of contradictory evidence. Yeah, sure. And I also don't. Th- I think you're allowed that presumption for yourself, but I don't think that it's right. In fact, I think it's really wrong to broadcast it. Yeah. Um, maybe you're in a different position because you're allowed to just be funny and make light. So yes. then those those cues are helpful. But yes. I think that if you really, you know, like you've got to be just with people. Yeah, well, I have to be accountable for what I say. That's kind yeah. of the part of the job. Yeah. But equally, I would like to be held accountable in the context of what else yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had exactly. that very particularly annoying lady in Edinburgh who heckled oh, yeah, me in the middle of this, yeah. in the middle of a joke that was about and explicitly about discomfort. Yeah. And it just was so infuriating because I had, in my own perception, done a lot of work. Yeah. To contextualise this bit yeah. as a silly bit. That was part of a broader argument about a quite a serious point. Yeah. But she she jumped on that silly bit as though it were the point of the argument. And it's that thing that happens. Well, it's, it's also easy, right? Because it's a well, it's like a well signposted path for a person to sort of follow in order to be the protester, you know, the voice of whatever um, it was she was trying to be. Trying to, yeah. And then the other thing that's been annoying me recently is that is the. The aggressive presumption, the aggressive assumption that you are doing something that you are not. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that happened with the Clear Lines Festival. I did this Clear Lines Festival or Rape Fest 2017, as I didn't oh. call it out loud. Um, <laughs> it was about consent and all of that. Uh, and it, there were four comedians, incredibly different material. Everyone did really interesting, nuanced takes on the whole thing. There was, you know, conversation about male victims and how well the whole thing was really interesting actually it was not what I had expected with my own kind of prejudices about those kind of events Events, yeah and I did my stuff and you know some of my stuff is a little bit edgy on that as well and then someone put a a photograph of the four comedians and the coordinator and uh, we were all women and this guy on Twitter just jumped in and was like meh feminists bleating about how shit men are and I was like <laughs> that's not like it's they've they've assumed you've done something and then come to you and like flicked your ear about it yeah like it, there's something but so you just have to I mean that's just that's just a you know 
that's just trolling. <laughs> that is just trolling. Well, it, is, it isn't just trolling because I genuinely think that that's something that he feels aggrieved by. Yeah, of course. But then he yeah. feels attacked by something that didn't happen. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happens on both sides, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's the consequence. It's sort of a recipe for your own grievance is attributing uh, crimes uh, without knowing whether they've actually been committed, attributing sort of wrongs that have been done to you and assuming just that someone must be going to wrong you, must be wronging you, must be saying those things. Well, that's just sort of an ego. It's like a narcissism. It's It's sort of trusting your own... Trusting your own feeling that you have been attacked rather than actually asking whether you have been well, attacked. Well, it's, it's just not bringing the other person as a person into it at all. It's just making them a puppet for your own... Projecting fears your own fears. And, and Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so. next time we'll talk about swearing when I get back from Geneva. Thank yeah. you very much for having tea with me. Sorry to derail it with my own Twitter stories, oh, which no, are the most no. boring of all stories. No, that's not a derailment. It's your podcast. Yeah. It's your podcast. Yeah, it is. Um, Thank Where you for letting me rant. You? Not, I don't know where really. I bought Han one of those tile things that lets you find your phone, and he said, "I don't want people knowing where my phone is." Yeah. <laughs> not even, not even myself. <laughs> um, so can't find Henry, but if you want to send him a message, email me alicerfraser at gmail and I'll pass it on unless it's just. I mean, I do have a Twitter handle, Henry Fraser Echo, but I almost never tweet anything. No, but you can find or him check there, it. Henry Fraser Echo. Uh, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you for having tea with me. Thank you.
hands up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lolly rifles all, lolly rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our hands up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lolly rifles all, lolly rifles day.